Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's not high finance. It's cold heart and soul. If it's rock and roll, got to go, 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 go. I'll keep moving on up to that higher ground. I'll keep on moving on up. I got to stand my ground. I'll keep on moving on up. I want to stick around. Well, that's about to grind me down. Well, that's about to grind Okay, that, that's Van Morrison, and we thought... By the way, this is Colin. Hi. Um, we thought we would play this at the beginning of the show because in the second segment we are going to talk about. I mean, this is an example of Van Morrison. It's not even a song you know, but it's really sublime. And so once again, Van Morrison has thrust us into this eternal question. How can someone produce sublime and beautiful works of any kind of art and be such a horrible person? I mean, he's such a bounder. Uh, and he's just kind of gone on full-on bounder. He's leaning into uh, his ugliness right now with a brand-new release. Anyway, that's in the second segment. Final segment will be if you're taking fewer showers, you're not alone. That's a thing that's happening. But right now, we're going to have a very different conversation because, as you know, our nation has been confronted with an incredible dilemma how to achieve a transfer of power in a way that is graceful, and legal and acceptable to the multitudes of Americans who care. No, I, we're not talking about the White House. I'm talking about Jeopardy. Jeopardy, the whole question is like, who's going to host? No, the, the, the White House is just, you know. Uh, anyway, joining us now to talk about this is Amanda Hess, who I believe was on this show when she was like eight years old, maybe, or something. I mean, it was like a really long time ago. But um, uh, anyway, she's a critic at large for The New York Times. She writes about the internet and pop culture. Uh, her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, ESPN, the magazine, Wired, Slate, all kinds of places. Uh, and she's uh, joining us now to talk about, in fact, that very question, the orderly transfer of power from the deceased uh, Alex Trebek to someone else. So, Amanda, first of all, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I, I'm very old now, as you can tell, because I'm commenting on Jeopardy, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite show. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was kind of a cliff. You know, you just it wasn't even like a steep curve. You know, you just sort of went uh, from uh, a young blushing thing to uh, an old lady watching Jeopardy. So, um, yeah. but that's okay. I mean, I because let's let's I don't know, let's lay our cards on the table about that. I mean, Jeopardy in some ways is. It is, in a way, kind of one of the last reservoirs of the Enlightenment in American popular culture. I mean, unlike everywhere else, there are right answers and wrong answers, although we're going to talk, I guess, about a moment where Jeopardy threatened to veer out of that lane. But I think one of the things, Amanda, you probably like about it is there, you know, there's a there's an answer. It has a question that goes with it. There's you know, there aren't five different possible ways to respond correctly. 
Yeah, it does feel like it stands alone in that way. And that's why I think, you know, Ken Jennings in 2019, he called Alex Trebek our generation's Cronkite. And it's interesting that the host of a game show, (laughs) not a journalist, would um, inherit that title. Right. And I think also, you know, reading your piece and thinking about Trebek, um, I was also thinking one of the things that Trebek figured out was to do less. You know, I mean, in a way, like his catchphrases, the things that he's known for, like good for you or I mean, that's not very much. And, And I think one thing that he understood and that you are also saying in your piece is it's not the Alex Trebek show. It's a show where smart people try to regurgitate information in an unusual format. You say the clues are the real star. Right. I think one of the things that I realized in the course of writing the piece was that one of the things that charmed me about Alex was that he was a little prickly mm-hmm. <laughs> at yeah. times uh, with the contestants. And I really did come to understand that that came out of this huge amount of respect that he had for the show and for the clues. So if you mispronounce something, Alex Trebek would let you know, because it was very important to him that the clues be, um, you know, treated in this very precise manner. Um, And so I do want a little bit of that, I think, from his successor. But I'm also interested in this idea that there can be a little bit of a twist on Jeopardy. And I'm, I'm curious whether... Uh, his successor will will take it in a slightly different direction. This is Jeopardy, and so you know, I you know, I watch it every night, and I don't want a big change. But I I am kind of interested in the various ways you could interpret the role. Right, and I should say that I am so incredibly old that I actually spent an, an afternoon here in Hartford, Connecticut, walking around with Art Fleming, who was in fact Alex Trebek's precursor, wow. uh, and, and he was the host of Jeopardy at the time too. We weren't just walking around because. Of whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's not as though nobody ever did this job except Alex Trebek. There was somebody before him. There can be somebody after him. And as you say, as you suggest, I guess, the world and the nation in particular has changed quite a bit since Alex Trebek stepped, stepped into those shoes. And, and, and maybe there's a way in which Jeopardy, without losing its incredible kind of eternal appeal, could, could reflect that somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting uh, that Alex Trebek was so fused with the show. It's the thing that we really know him for. Um, You know, it wasn't obvious, I think, watching the show now or last year that he had started his career as a broadcaster. Um, And so I'm kind of, you know, one thing I think that I'm looking for in a host is someone who seems to exude this jeopardiness, even though they haven't been hosting the show for 37 seasons. And I really found that personally in two people. One of them is obvious, Ken Jennings, the winningest um, contestant of Jeopardy. He's so associated with the show. And I think his persona, which is this kind of earnest, but also sardonic Gen X guy (laughs) really fits with my idea of what the ethos of the show is. But then there was someone who came out of left field. And that to me was Aaron Rodgers, who I was not rooting for. (laughs) Not a football fan. Didn't know much about this guy. I've heard since then that he's very good at football. Um, But he really surprised me. And I think part of what I found so endearing about him is that he is so good at Uh, this sport and he's a jock and yet he's so enthusiastic 
about Jeopardy. There's something about his interest in the facts and the clues that I just found so charming as someone who also, you know, is not, I'm not a big trivia person. I'm not great at trivia. I don't have a really great recall of facts. And so the fact that this football player is coming in and taking it so seriously and doing such a good job, I just found just really endearing. Well, yeah. So uh, we should uh, say we've got, first of all, I should say this is the second consecutive Monday that we've talked about Aaron Rodgers. And I believe the second (laughs) consecutive Monday that we have played a clip of him on Jeopardy. But uh, so let's hear a a little bit. This is a one gene. Uh, Let's hear a little bit about uh, of what Rodgers sounds like doing that. Title for 400. In the 1960s, these Midwesterners earned five NFL championship trophies. Green Bay Packers. Oh. <laughs> Dennis, go Try again. Try title I guess. for six hundred. They swept over the NBA, winning the title every year from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty six. Eric, we're the Boston Celtics. Oh, you know that one, huh? Look at title ways. All right. So, I mean, another thing that Rogers is is, and I actually know. A, a lot about Aaron Rodgers. He, he is kind of droll, you know? I mean, in his, I think I'm going to mention this last week on our Aaron Rodgers episode, that, for example, his offensive linemen have had to learn over the years. Those are the people who block for him. Uh, those are the people. Thank you. So <laughs> Thank they, they've, you they've had to learn over the years as they come back to the huddle that they need to be somewhat con- very conversant with the dialogue from the Princess Bride because he's quite capable of saying inconceivable to them or something like that. Uh, and initially this drew some blank stares, but he just happens to be very immersed in that movie and has, you know, le mot juste for everything out of it. And, you know, you hear him there and you can hear him a lot of times, even more than Trebek, I think he kind of likes the sly little joke. Yeah, I mean, I know that you said that you you found Trebek to be dry and I agree that he was, but you do need this little, I think you need this hint of uh, personality um, and you, frankly, you need the standing to be able to insert your own um, little commentary in this game that, you know, I think what I appreciate it is about facts. It's not really about commentary. Um, And I do think there's something about him being (laughs) an MVP (laughs) quarterback. Listen listen to you. (laughs) Which is, again, something I learned recently um, that helps him to uh, step into that kind of role. Um, all right. So let's also talk about Jennings here. So, you know, oddly, like I would have thought initially that it made a certain amount of sense, right, uh, to to have Jennings in, inherit that mantle, partly because, yes, I mean, you know, he's won so much there, but also because like Trebek, he's not bigger than the game. You know, I, I didn't mean to say Trebek was was dry, but he, he knew like less is more. Uh, you know, we don't need that much Trebek. We need mainly Jeopardy, you know, and there's just enough Trebek. And he was very good at figuring out what that sweet spot was. And you would think that Jennings would be able to do the same thing. And I kind of think he does. Although I just note they're out in the, you know, Jeopardy verse. He seems kind of a divider, too. There are a lot of people who just really don't want him in this job. Anyway, just quickly before Amanda weighs in on that, let's uh, hear a little bit uh, of Jennings. I think what you're going to hear here, too, is somebody kind of, a contestant kind of trolling him during Final Jeopardy with the correct answer uh, that uh, ended his 74-game winning streak. Jennings, as I mean. Here we go. Brian Chang had a big lead. 
Which company did you think of in the business of travel? What is H&R Block? Oh. Now, Brian, I know from experience, H&R Block is sometimes the right answer, but not today, I'm afraid. That's going to cost you something. How much? $3,799. Even though you brought back some bad memories for me, you're still going to go home with $13,201. You're our new Jeopardy! champion. So, Amanda, we should also say that I mean, they should publish a list now of the people who aren't being auditioned or at least allowed to run through there. I think Keith Richards, Keith Richards has definitely been ruled out. Uh, the Olsen twins also will not be. But I mean, really, it seems like everybody's going through there. I don't know. You, I hear when Jennings there, a guy who seems appropriately relaxed. He always, you know, when he's on in other capacities also, seems like he's having just the right amount of good time. I, but have you noticed that there's like if you go out there in the Twitterverse or whatever, there are a lot of people really don't want him to do this. Um, I've seen a little bit of that. I actually I haven't you know, I've gotten a lot of emails about mm. this story, I think, because the New York Times audience and the Jeopardy <laughs> audience are about, you know, just mm. a, a an overlapping circle. Um, and I haven't heard a lot of Ken hate. Okay, good. Um, I do think, you know, at least for me personally, there was some goodwill extended to him for this role that he took, which was taking over immediately mm-hmm. for Alex. And it was such an emotional moment. Um, and I just thought he handled it so well. Um, and I'm kind of curious, I do think the role has maybe loosened up a little bit in the months and months since that's happened. And so I'd be interested to see him do it again. Um, but I have to say that the the main thing that I heard from people writing in was that they were disappointed in me that I did not give any due to the executive producer, Mike Richards, who many people felt uh, like did a great job. Um, I didn't agree. <laughs> uh, but there, there was a lot of love for him in my inbox. So uh, one thing I think that the Jeopardy universe was, is much more, well, I don't, united is probably the wrong word, but the idea that Dr. Oz would be, I don't, what were they thinking? Bringing Dr. Oz, who really does have a fairly slipshod relationship with the truth, occasionally bordering on, bordering on real quackery. So here you have this, you know, enlightenment model show. <laughs> and you bring a guy on there who's just just doesn't really kind of have a really strong reputation for embracing the right answer in his actual career. Yeah. And this is actually my beef with Mike Richards. Uh, it's ultimately his decision, you know, whether Oz goes on the show or, or not. And I just thought it was such a bad call that to me, um, you know, it really tainted his own tenure. And I sort of wondered when when Mike came on, whether he was trying to kind of like Dick Cheney himself, you know, like, oh, it's my job to search for the replacement and perhaps it will be me. Um, but Dr. Oz, yeah, I mean, the thing that I was really struck by with Dr. Oz is not just his reputation, which I think we're familiar with him having a uh, you know, as you said, not the most fact-based reputation, but just his presenting style was also so odd. I described him as a real doctor who plays a fake doctor on TV, <laughs> and there's something just so smarmy about his presentation that really felt like oil and water to me, <laughs> trying to slip into the Jeopardy mode. Well, also, you, I think you linked to an article that detailed his inability to pronounce 
or or like pick up some of his cues accurately. And I think uh, on a final Jeopardy, he had to say the word. I hope I don't mess it up now. Anti disestablishmentarianism. There, I think I got it out. I actually know what it means too. But I mean, clearly he didn't know what it meant, and he apparently didn't know that he was saying it wrong. And so they did like six or seven takes, and there was sort of no way to correct him because he didn't know he wasn't getting it right then. I mean. You know, one of the things you got to do if you're host of Jeopardy is like read stuff from a card or wherever it is, right? Right. And uh, Claire McNear, who is this amazing chronicler of the Jeopardy world, wrote that story. And one of the contestants that she quoted said something, I think, like, it didn't seem like Dr. Oz liked Jeopardy. <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't seem like he's even an appreciator, a fan of the show. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was a really dark period, but it did emphasize this wider situation uh, that Jeopardy finds itself in where the idea of facts are um, politicized um, at the moment. Uh, And this, I think this idea that accumulating facts and spitting them out um, is to a lot of people, um, you know, not something worth doing. Right. We should say Claire's been on the show and she's, I think, going to be a, a guest host. In fact, Amanda, I'm starting to wonder if you and I are just like chopped liver or something. Like, why <laughs> why, is our, why, are our phones not ringing? But um, so still to come are some people who are scheduled or scheduled to be scheduled. I mean, I think the closest thing to a campaign, and I think he's part of it, is LeVar Burton, who obviously is you know, a very well-known actor, was uh, Jordi uh, on Star Trek, was Kunta Kinte, uh, was involved in Reading Rainbow. Uh, I mean, you know, that would be sort of an easy way to send a signal that, okay, you know, we know it's 2021 right now. Jeopardy's going to look a little different. Yeah. And also, I mean, he just fits the ethos of Jeopardy so perfectly. You know, he I know that he fought to be able to use the reading rainbow catchphrase, which is but you don't have to take my word for it. And I I can't think of a more, you know, simpatico Jeopardy catchphrase. Um, So I'm really excited to see him. Um, He is 64, which, um, again, you know, the Jeopardy audience, since I, I watch the commercials and many of them are for um, pharmaceutical companies, <laughs> I'm sure, is also a little bit older. Uh, but I think, you know, it's a little bit like trying to find a new Supreme Court justice where um, if you want Jeopardy to last for many, many more decades, you might not be choosing somebody who's a little older. Um, but I am really interested in seeing his his two-week stint. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, in defense of choosing older people, which I'm totally in favor of, um, you know, another way to think about this is it it may not be bad for Jeopardy if somebody does does the job for five to eight years and then they roll over to somebody else. It gives Jeopardy a chance to kind of rethink itself uh, and and maybe invite a new bunch of people in. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things I've been disappointed by is that Aaron, I believe so far is the only 30 something who uh, has taken a turn. I would love to see um, also, you know, some younger people, but maybe, you know, after LeVar does his tenure, we'll see a 30 something take over Jeopardy. It's Aaron now, is it? Now you're on a first name basis with him. I know. I mean, he really got me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, I like him now. That is readily apparent. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I don't know. As you look down the road, there are other people coming up. I don't know. Is, is there anybody else out there who kind of intrigues you as a possibility for, you know, particularly for maybe sending that signal about the show? 
there's somebody who uh, wasn't chosen, uh, but who came up in the sort of speculation before they started announcing these guest hosts. And I have to say, I'm a little bit biased because she's an acquaintance of mine. But Mina Kimes, the ESPN presenter, I think would do an impeccable job. I would love to see her do it. She's in her 30s. I think she would be great. All right. So uh, and um, we should also say there have been some news people, the sort of the Anderson Coopers and the Katie Couric's and the people like that. I don't know. That doesn't feel right somehow for Jeopardy host. Not that those people are necessarily available either. But I don't, what, what was your reaction? Yeah, I feel like um, I have a little bit of a bias against them because um, Jeopardy is my comfort food. It's, you know, last year I had a baby and I had a C-section and my kid was whisked off to the NICU. And that night in the hospital, the only thing I wanted to do was watch an episode of Jeopardy. (laughs) It's just the most comforting thing to me. And I don't want it to feel like the news. Um, and when Anderson Cooper comes out, he makes it feel like the news to me. And I just, um, I want to avoid that at least for this 30 minute, um, portion of my evening. Well, Amanda, has, first of all, great to hear your voice uh, back on our show, uh, critic at large for The New York Times, uh, where she writes about the Internet, pop culture and other stuff. And obviously uh, next Monday, I don't know how we're going to do Jeopardy and or Aaron Rodgers for a third week, but I'm sure we'll find a way. But Amanda, great to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you, too. And coming up after the break, uh, somebody who creates some of the most sublime pop music uh, of my lifetime anyway and it's just the opposite kind of person from that that's right out you lost and let me tell you what you didn't win a 20 volume set of the encyclopedia international a case of turtle wax and a year's supply of rice only the san francisco treat but that's not all. All right. So um, I should say that uh, I'm a big fan, or I have been a big fan, of Van Morrison's over the years. And I'm not talking about, like, Brown Eyed Girl and Moondance. I, like, I don't know. I mean, even some of the stuff he's put out in the last five to seven years has struck me as equally compelling uh, and sublime. There's a song called Every Time I See a River that just kind of knocks me out. But there has always been a dark streak in him, and the streak got way darker during the pandemic as he became kind of an anti-lockdown activist and was, you know, releasing songs that were essentially kind of COVID denier songs. Uh, And now he has released uh, a double album called Latest Record Project Volume 1, 28 songs, uh, a lot of which are really crazy uh, and highly unpleasant. Uh, We're going to focus a little bit right now with our guest on one of them. But before I introduce the guest, let's hear that song. It's called They Own the Media. They tell us that ignorance is bliss. I guess for those that control the media, it is. They control the stories we are told. If you ever try to go against them, you will be ignored. Cause they control. They control. All right. So uh, joining us right now is uh, Lewis Keen, uh, a staff reporter for The Forward. Welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I mean, uh, uh, even taken on its face with no interpretation, there's something, you know, 
kind of paranoid uh, about this song. But, I mean, he also is, uh, as you have pointed out and others have pointed out, he's he's blowing a very familiar dog whistle. I don't think he says anywhere in the song who he thinks they are. But, but what would be a reasonable interpretation of, of the word? It's interesting that his original band was called Them, now that I think of it. But anyway, uh, what would be a reasonable interpretation of what he's talking about here? Well, I don't know. I, I think it would be reasonable to say that saying they control the media is a is a fairly well-known anti-Semitic trope. Um, and uh, he never actually refers to they as being Jewish people, but I think uh, this is a good example of how trafficking in, in right-wing conspiracy theories um, uh, can can lead you down the road that gets you in the position to possibly say something that could be perceived as anti-Semitic. And in, in this case, uh, he's, he certainly still uh, stepped well across that line. Well, also this is not his first dance with they, uh, in 2005, uh, he did a song called they sold me out. And there, when you're mentioning shekels in the lyric, I, I think, you know, some, whatever immunity you might claim, uh, gets uh, gets worn down a little bit by by a, a word like that. Yeah, that's right. I, I I think there will always be a sense of uh, a, a way that you can create plausible deniability. I think in that case, uh, Van Morrison said the song was about the record industry, but uh, you know, at a certain point, when uh, smoke adds up, and you kind of take it for what any reasonable person might interpret it as. So, you know, as we, and we should say that the other songs, many of the other songs in the album, I think we're going to end this segment with a song called Why Are You On Facebook, uh, which is also maybe not an area that, you know, he can contribute to meaningfully. I don't know, as you explored this and in your reporting, did you feel like as you got got any insight? I mean, certainly this is an old conversation in a way. It's an old conversation in two ways. Part of the conversation is how can someone create sublime art and be a horrible person uh, or, you know, or at least have these incredible dark tendencies. And then there's the whole other separate question that dates back at least as far as Wagner, if not further, uh, as, you know, how do these people wind up veering into the anti-Semitic lane the way that they do? But let's talk about the first one and then we'll talk about the second one. This, the first one is like, you know, what's going on with this guy? Did it, Did you find or talk to anybody who has any perspective on on how he can be he can contain such multitudes well you know i think he's uh he's 75 years old and i i wouldn't put his work today in the same category as his work from uh his early years um and you know i think people get fox news brain sometimes you know and if you stay in the same uh, echo chambers and become exposed to more and more extreme content, eventually uh, it can start to have an effect on your own worldview. And um, I think maybe some people are more receptive to that material than others, but uh, it happens. And, you know, I, I look at this song, They Own the Media, and it's hard for me not to laugh at it uh, because it, you know, other songs, like you mentioned, why are you on Facebook? Big lie, no more lockdown. It's kind of, uh, veering into self parody. Um, and it's, I, you know, I don't 
expect people to use Van Morrison as their, uh, you know, political information source. Uh, and I think most people are receiving this the same way. And I think, you know, uh, it's getting one star reviews and it, you know, it's not, it's not the work of a genius here. I, I, I think it would be a pretty big stretch to, to put his work here on the same, in the same conversation as his work, uh, from back then. Although you do raise the interesting question of, of how does this complicate, um, you know, your relationship with Moondance or Brown Eyed Girl or, or any particular song or album that you have fond feelings about. Yeah, and I think it's also the case that in, in Van Morrison's case, th- yeah, those are some of his better known songs and they, they're kind of poppy. But for people who might have taken a slightly deeper dive or a much deeper dive into Morrison, a lot of his work is deeply spiritual in nature. Uh, a lot of his work is very immersed and connected to kind of the Anglo-Celtic poetry condition uh, tradition uh you know there's there's a way in which if you're not going to just stay with the top 40 hits if you're going to get to know Morrison better you're going to find some you know some personal i mean i don't know also just the song like did you get healed uh i think has been very very powerful to for people who who maybe are facing you know medical or other trauma um you know a song like have i told you lately that i love you is really regarded as one of the more sublime songs among certain couples you know like the perfect summation uh, of of our relationship uh i mean this is stuff you know music is very powerful to people so yeah, yeah. how do you maintain a relationship Relationship with someone who has spoken to you that profoundly when you discover that he's this dreadful person. But, I, you know, as, as we're both saying, that's an old question. It is. And I think it's a decision everyone has to make for themselves. I think that the, you run into issues when you tell other people how they should enjoy or um, understand or, you know, negotiate a part- any particular um, work of art. Um, you know, there there's, yeah, there's countless examples where you know, some people can't listen to Wagner because uh, he wrote anti-Semitic treatises um, and he was Hitler's favorite uh, composer. Uh, there's other people who can kind of, uh, in, you know, enjoy the music and, and kind of understand it for what he is. And I think probably what's most important is that um, that artist or whoever it is, whether it's Van Morrison or, or, um, or Wagner or anyone else uh, sort of bears bears that stain um, and that we do talk about it and that we, you know, that we have to negotiate it um, because that's probably the most productive outcome for anything uh, ever, any, any, any moment like this, you know, Van Morrison coming out with an album uh, that has a song called they Own the media. um, You know, if this is a good jumping off point for now, uh, you know, discussing whether Jews in fact own the media, um, (laughs) then, then maybe something useful has happened here. And I think, um, that can be a good teaching point. One of the other things that you delved into in your article is that, you know, although anti-Semitism doesn't pop up a lot in popular music, the other place that it can pop up in this kind of almost what almost seems like a kind of Louis Farrakhan derived way, it occasionally pops up within the world of hip hop. Did you want to say a little something about that? Yeah, um, it, that's that's kind of how it's come up in recent years. Um and I think that's a it's a trickier um, field to navigate because you know here it's I think it's very simple to say okay if we're saying Jews on the media if if that's how we're interpreting Van Morrison's lyric 
then you know we can say pretty simply this 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 is anti-Semitic. This is a, a bad thing to say. Um, it, in in rap lyrics, it comes out a little bit. Uh, it comes out more positively. So um, uh, okay, so there's a Jay Z song, um, the story of OJ, which came out a few years ago, um, where he has a, a lyric. You know, you want to know what's more important than throwing away money at a strip club? Credit. You ever wonder? Uh, why actually, people- actually, Lewis, not that you're not doing an excellent job of wrapping this thing out, but we've actually got to hear. <laughs> uh, we've actually got to hear for you. So, Gene, let's play beat. Oh, two. go ahead. You want to know what's more important than throwing away money at a strip club? Credit. You ever wonder why Jewish people own all the property in America? That's how they did it. Financial freedom, my only hope. Living rich and dying broke. All right. Uh, you yeah, were, I think you... I'll leave the rapping to the rappers from now on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I thought you were dropping some knowledge there. But um, no. So so I don't know. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I, I like I said, I think it's a little bit more complicated here because, you know, he is invoking a strain of, uh, you know, I guess, paranoia about Jewish wealth and uh, Jewish uh, control. And, um, you know, he's. Jewish people do not, in fact, own all the property in America, and it's hard to um, bring that nuance through in a in you know one verse or or, or two. Um, but I think what Jay Z would say is that he's trying to uplift um, uplift Black Americans with a message of economic nationalism and using Jewish people as a source of inspiration. Um, you know, he said in his own in his book. Um, that, and he said in a number of places that, you know, yeah, I would, I would expect people who know my music and who know me to understand that I'm not just throwing anti-Semitism or, or other forms of ignorance, uh, out into my music, that there's more complicated things going underneath that are being alluded to here. Um, the, the trouble that you get into is when someone like LeBron James then sort of, uh, quotes these lyrics in his uh, Instagram story. Uh, he didn't do it with Jay-Z, but he did it with another rapper who said he was getting that Jewish money, everything is kosher, um, which leads to, you know, many other people uh, who maybe don't perceive the lyrics as, um, in as nuanced a way as they're intended to be uh, received uh, uh, in, in as simplistic way as possible. Um, and, to say, oh yeah, the Jewish people do own all the property in America, and um, you know, as a Jewish person who who faces anti-Semitism, um, this is it, it comes in all forms, right? It comes in positive stereotypes and it comes in negative stereotypes, and, and we have to we have to fight back against all forms. Yeah, I don't even really buy the defense that you know. I, Jay-Z, am making a more nuanced point that way or something. There's a lot of ways to make that point without putting your foot on that particular third rail or kicking that tripwire. And just the history uh, of that particular trope uh, is, you know, we we know what that history is. We know where it's gone in the past. And it just it it doesn't really 
I don't really even buy the defense that, well, if you looked a little bit more closely, you'd understand what I'm saying about wealth acquisition and how it can transfer from one culture to another and, you know, one culture can learn the other one's tricks or whatever. I don't know. It just <laughs> it doesn't you, – you, you could make that point some other way. You don't have to go there. Um, yeah. I mean, it's something that you hear, uh, you know, um, but uh, the goal is to make whenever it comes up uh, – uh, a good discussion uh, on even footing and not just a, a cheap shot. All right. So uh, we're going to stop there, uh, although we are going to play one more disturbing Van Morrison song uh, on our <laughs> way out. But uh, Lewis Keen is staff reporter at The Forward. Thanks for your time today, sir. Thanks for having me. And I, and I will say I do like this next one. All right. Here we go. Why are you on Facebook? Why do you need secondhand friends? Why do you really care who's trending? Or is there something you're defending? Get a life, is it that empty inside? Or are you after something you can't have? You kiss the girls and run away. Now you won't come out to play. Why you want Facebook? All right, uh, we are back. And before we proceed, I have to thank a certain people today. So Cat Pastor is off. Uh, so we have Gene Amatruda coming in to conduct this orchestra. And believe me, it's like having Dudamel come in to conduct your orchestra. Uh, so Gene Amatruda, uh, thanks for making the time for us today. Betsy Kaplan is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode as well. Uh, so thanks uh, to her. And now it is time for our final segment. Uh, in our final segment, people... People's relationship with their showers vis-a-vis uh, -vis the pandemic could probably go one of two different ways. You know, for example, if you're a frontline healthcare worker, uh, and I know a lot of them who've done this, they'd find some way to take a shower before they interacted with the rest of the people living in their house and they come home from work and uh, some people had outdoor showers or a different place to shower or somehow or other would, you know, and that just like happened every day because you don't want to take any chances uh, on stuff coming out of your clothes. Uh, there are other people who have to really be worried uh, about antigens coming in, people who are neutropenic, for example. They're probably going to want people to take – well, I actually know this for a fact that they, they want lots of people to take showers. But what about the rest of us? with the rest of people. Well, joining us now is Maria Kramer, a breaking news reporter for the New York Times, previously covered legal affairs for the Boston Globe, uh, and she uh, has a piece called See Fewer People, Take Fewer Showers. She really took a deep dive into this, and thanks for joining us today, Maria. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, what what do we actually know about this? What do we actually know about whether people are taking more showers? You, you talk to a lot of people. I did, yes. And um, I want to start this off by saying this was hardly very scientific polling um, that we did. Mm. Um, this this idea was inspired, I think, by probably editors who uh, were thinking, I'm showering less, maybe people are showering less. But then uh, we saw that there had been a survey done of people in the UK. And that survey, uh, which was uh, far more scientific than what we were thinking, um, showed that 17% um, of Britain, of people from you know the UK were showering less. And this was a result of the pandemic, of course. They were seeing fewer people. They were uh, going out less. And so um, their their habits you know, in terms of bathing had changed a bit. 
And when uh, I went on social media just to see what was going on over here, uh, this side of the con- this side of the world, it, it looked like there were a lot of people who were feeling the same way. A lot of people responded to that survey in, in the UK and said, yes, that's me. So um, I began reaching out to people and, and it really wasn't very hard to find people who had changed their habits. Yeah. And, and they, they, in some ways, told you different stories, but also told you the same story, right? Which is the, it was, seemed like it was kind of a, a thing where they thought, well, what would happen if I showered half as much as I usually do or even at a lower rate than that? Um, I don't know. What kinds of things were they sharing with you? So yeah, that, that's 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 definitely uh, correct. What we were seeing was that, and what people were telling us was that, you know, even though you're at home and you feel like you have more time, you, you really don't in many ways. Many people are juggling children, they're juggling their jobs, they're cooking at home, they're cleaning. It's it it just became very very tiring, and so they people began to sort of question why they were showering. I, I you know this is this can be 10, 15 minutes out of the day. And um, and so maybe I can spend my time doing something else. And and they just kind of experimented. Now, I want to be very clear that everybody I spoke to said they're very hygienic. They, you know, they (laughs) consider washing to be important what they were. So they were washing at the sink. And um, that's what a lot of people told me. But what they were doing differently was, you know, this whole sort of uh, ritual of getting inside the shower, turning on the faucet, letting the water pour over you, um, and 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 you know, spending time, um, you know, on, on uh, in, you know, in this traditional way, right, of of bathing. And the other thing that people began to be cognizant of as well was the environmental factors that go into taking a shower and skipping it, and feeling like maybe I can do you know my little part here to reduce my my carbon footprint and uh, you know help the environment a bit by by um, by cutting down my showers. Yeah, you cited uh, the, the fact that an eight-minute shower uses up to 17 gallons of water. According to Water Research Fund, running water for even five minutes uses as much energy as running a 60-watt light bulb for 14 hours. Although I find myself wondering, Maria, whether people stopped showering. I think I think one of the things that went away was the trigger that tells you you got to take a shower. Like you're, right. going, you're going into work, you got to take a shower. You're getting together with friends for dinner on a Saturday night, you got to take a shower. You're not doing any of those things, then there isn't that little click in your head that says, oh, yeah, I got to take a shower. I got to make time to take a shower right now because I'm going to see all these people and I, I don't want to stink. Um, you know, I, I wonder if with, I think I think it might have started there. And then people are going, hey, I wonder if there's an env- I bet you it's good for the environment that I'm not doing this. I think. No, absolutely. And uh, I was remiss in, in raising that point when I when I when I you know was talking about why people were doing this. Definitely. You know, you're seeing a lot fewer people. So, of course, um, why would you go to the trouble if you're wearing sweatpants and not really putting on makeup, uh, you know, or or taking care of you know other things that you normally would take care of because you wanted to appear good to your colleagues and your supervisors? You know, a shower is in that list. And if 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 that need has gone away. Um, I don't have to impress people the way that I used to. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, uh, that's one less habit to 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 uh, to do away with and, and save yourself some time. So, I mean, the, the the part of not seeing people, I mean, that was the headline, right? See fewer people, take fewer showers. You're not going to take a shower if you don't have to worry about what people think. Right. And, and uh, you know, as you point out in the article, I mean, it's not as though we've been taking daily showers or anything close to that for the entire history of humankind. Uh, it's a like fairly recent idea that you wouldn't even have the opportunity to take a, a daily shower. Uh, and, and although I do wonder, so what happened when this article came out? Because the article kind of, 
you know, it doesn't have a point of view exactly, but I think, you know, at the end of the article, you think, well, you know, it kind of dries out your skin and uses a lot of water and, you know, I mean, maybe it's a good thing if you don't take so many showers. What what happened on social media when your article ran? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, a, you know, I definitely wasn't advocating for one position or the other. I'm just, you know, you know, laying out the information and letting people do with it what they will. And And I think everybody comes at the story from their own perspective, from their own, you know, frame of, of mind and people are, I was really surprised by how strident the, the pro shower voices were. I mean, everybody's pro shower, excuse me. Most people are anyway, um, who, who have access to running water, but you know, but the people who are pro shower every day, oh my goodness. I mean, you'd have thought people were, you know, just walking around, you know, covered in their own filth. The way that they were responding to to my very brave sources for coming out and talking about um, how they had changed their habits. They took it very personally. Um, They they really felt um, almost offended by the idea that people would do this less and then put themselves out there and expose us all to, to, you know, to their smelly masses. It was it was a really strong reaction on social media and um, from people who who feel like this is just, you know, the end of civilization as we know it, if people stop showering less. Well, then when you had, you know, the, the responses from people who have skin problems mm-hmm. and um, or dry skin. And they said, you know, look, this is actually really good for me. I mean, you know, I have I have some serious skin problems. My dermatologist actually told me to stop showering less. And it's been, it's done wonders for my skin. I, I had one gentleman write me an email and say, you know, that he had stopped taking, you know, showers every day. And, you know, this is a little bit too much information perhaps, but, you know, he had some really troubling skin problems that just, that really went away. So people were really open with me when they were talking about how this had changed their lives for the better. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the reactions were really intense um, on both sides, but especially on the side of people who feel like, if you stop showering every day, then you you've just stopped caring. Um, that, that, that they were very very firm on how this was just just not what's what what good people of society do. Yeah, no, and it is uh, it's funny too because heading into the pandemic, I think there was a growing understanding of the significance of the microbiome. It's why people take probiotics now and stuff like that. That idea that getting yourself as sterilized as you possibly can or, you know, scrubbing your kitchen down with antibacterial soap or these things are not necessarily good for you that you sort of need to live as though you were, you know, well, I mean, Ed Yong's book about this is I Contain Multitudes, you know, that you contain multitudes and there are multitudes outside whether you can see them or not, they're all there and you're actually way better off. You know, if you if you have some kind of regular exposure to to all of that stuff, there was even one guy that we interviewed about microbiomes, one researcher who was kind of looking into the question of whether it's good to own a dog because dogs are always bringing in, you know, Mm -hmm. for you to touch all kinds of weird stuff from their outside environment. But I think during the pandemic, you know, because people were legitimately concerned uh, about fomite transition, transmission and stuff like that, maybe that's why you got such an an urgent reaction from the pro lots of shower people. 
It's possible. I think there's also, I, I, I think that's a big part of it, even though we know scientifically that stripping our body of, of the essential oils and the bacteria that's good for it is not a good idea. Mm. We still, we still, we just kind of can't get past this idea of the shower. And I think a big part of that is we're a country that is, is, is very much about marketing. You know, we, the, uh, so much of our culture is around buying into what we see on television and what we see on social media and what we see, you know, what's advertised to us directly, which is that you must smell good. You must always, you know, um, project this image of being clean. And that's, that's, that's definitely, I think, something that's quite particular to the American culture um, and why the, the, there was such a strong reaction. We've really bought into it. It's, um, and it feels good. It feels good to take a shower. It feels good to put lavender scented soap on our bodies. I mean, these, these are really nice rituals that make us feel really good and make us smell good. And so, um, it, you know, it raises our sense of self-worth. It, there's, there's a reason why this kind of marketing is successful. It's because this is a pleasurable thing, smelling good and, and, and showering. But at the same time, you know, I think what I appreciated about being able to do this story is to research some more um, thoughtful ways of looking at why we, why we have these habits, why we've had them for so long, and why they continue and why they persist and why they maybe aren't what you know what we what we've always believed them to be cracked up to be that there that there's that there's a way to think differently about you know bathing <laughs> right so maria kramer is a great story my favorite one of my favorite lines in the story i think the woman was a teacher she said look if you deal with four or five six-year-old kids they're going to tell you if you smell bad so uh, you got yeah. a built-in alarm system right there maria kramer Absolutely. is a breaking news reporter for the new york times she previously covered covered legal affairs for the boston globe uh, her article that excited our interest is see fewer people take fewer showers uh and so uh, i am going to go and not take a shower but I have things to do, and I'm sure you do too. Thanks again to Gina Matruda for sitting in as technical producer today, and thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing the show. And let him go, yes, sister. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. And send him on his way. I'm gonna send him. 